Einstein and Sock Monkey, Episode 8, Working in Your Strata, recorded April 19th, 2011. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at audibletrial.com slash Einstein. Over 85,000 titles to choose from for your iPod, iPhone, MP3 player, or even your Kindle. <laughs> There's a whole sock monkey culture connected to all this. I believe that Einstein was a lazy procrastinator like me. Yeah, but can you guys tell me what this has to do with um, web design? Welcome to Einstein and Sock Monkey, the podcast for web geeks and website owners. I'm one of your hosts, Ron Zazadinsky. And I'm Steve Martin, another host. Uh, so what, Ron? What's new in Ronland? In Ronland, uh, lots of travel. I just got back from somewhere, and now somewhere, I'm somewhere. <laughs> I'm like, where did I? Greensboro, North Carolina. I visited our great friend Matt West. Oh, right. Matt underscore West underscore seventeen on Twitter, and that was fantastic. Had a really wonderful time hanging out with him. Cool, talking design stuff. He's working for a cool company startup out there. He used to be here in Fort Collins. Yeah. Yep, and then uh, next week I'm heading out to San Francisco, so I'm looking forward to that. Really? Work with my sister for a few days and then uh, teaching flying for a couple of days. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, uh, how about you? I just was in Boston, speaking of traveling. Um, seems like we are constantly talking about us traveling places. <laughs> um, I was just in Boston for the Healthcare Experience Design Conference. And what was that like? That was... It sounds boring. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually... Uh, I, like I was telling you earlier, it's, I think half of it, I felt like half of it was awesome, and the other half felt like a commercial. Mm. And I think part of that is... Commercials suck. Yeah. Um, well, well, we, we have one later, so don't say it's <laughs> But um, I think, I think <laughs> the point. reason for that is it's, it was the very first year ever doing this. Mm. And so it was the first conference. It was the very first uh, healthcare experience design conference ever. And I think, you know, and Mad Pow put it on and they did a really good job. I mean, it flowed well. Everything worked out great. Um, but I think the, the, it seems to be an issue with trying to figure out what's the audience. I felt like okay. the, the speakers didn't quite know who the audience was. And so I think that's where the, some of the went problem. the tracks a little bit. Yeah. But the, the overall, there was some great stuff. I learned a lot of neat things about the intricacies and difficulties of doing any kind of ex- user experience design in the healthcare world. I think in the first 20 minutes, I learned about 10 new acronyms oh my that I've never heard of before that I've already forgotten. Um, <laughs> but anyway, it was good. And I think that next year it would be a lot better. Um, you know, it's just... The first time you do anything, there's always hiccups and difficulties, and I'm surprised it went as smoothly as it did, I'll be honest. Hmm. But it was, it was pretty nice. Well, it seems like it, there could be a lot of need. I mean, the healthcare industry, certainly my experience of it is it could use lots of improvement on the experience side of it. Oh, definitely. So I think it's a yeah, never-ending uh, area for improvement, so I'm glad yeah. they have the conference. And it was sold out, too. Great. Yeah, How many great. people were there? How big was this? Um, I want to say... Four or five hundred people. Oh, it's a nice size, yeah. Which is the same, roughly the same size as the IA Summit, right? So, and it was in right in the middle of downtown Boston. I had an extra day. I, I was a bonehead and booked my flight um, the day a day late. Oh, so I had an accident. Yeah, I had a day oh. in Boston to do nothing. So I did a little work. You know, I didn't want to feel like I was wasting the company's money completely. Um, did some work, but I also kind of walked around to see the nice. historical sites in Boston. I'm Paul Revere's you, house. And all oh, that's that cool. I'm glad you took advantage of the opportunity to be there. Yeah. yeah, it was a lot of fun. It's not like you're in Boston every day, and it is a pretty cool <laughs> city. I've only explored it a tiny bit, so I hardly know it It's at all. a great place to visit. I don't know if I'd ever want to live in the middle of Boston. I'm not a big, giant city person anyway. Mm-hmm. That's just me. Anyway, well... Let's get on with the show, I guess. Absolutely. I think news is next, and yeah. you're up first. Well, um, the first thing I wanted to, to mention, and I'm sure a lot of folks have come across this or heard about this already, but um, Microsoft has released a, an, a preview of IE10 Woo! already. Impressive, given that IE9 is just officially out like 
I what, know. a month or two ago. I was so that's say, cool. Has it is it out yet? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. It is officially out. Well, um, we'll have a link uh, in the show notes to the uh, um, the the blogs at msdn.com uh, where they talk about this. But what I th- the thing that actually pointed me to this to begin with was a post by Je- uh, John Gruber. Uh, daring fireball with actually mm-hmm. the translation of what the guy is actually saying and in um, the blog post in the blog post oh my because gosh. it's you know the, is it the that bad the blog post on msn site is native html5 first ie10 platform preview available for download and the big thing that they're po- they're pointing at is that with ie10 we're going to have native html5 as in the browser is really part of the OS and so all the processing is done with the OS somehow and that's supposed to be better Hmm. is really (laughs) thus the translation. Okay, fair (laughs) enough because I'm not getting it yet. (laughs) Um, And like it's kind of funny. It's really tongue-in-cheek translation honestly. That's cool. um, Like a quote from the, the original article says, browsers that use modern operating systems more directly deliver better experiences. Browsers that compromise by spreading across too many OSs and OS versions face challenges. Translation, we can't decide if we want IE to drive Windows adoption or Windows to drive IE adoption. <laughs> and um, anyway, it's, 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 it's good to know what's coming, of course, um, and IE will continue to be um, pretty... Uh, prevalent, no matter what we do, at least in the short term. But um, so we, we'll have a link to the the announcement from uh, MSN, the, um, from Microsoft themselves, along with the download link, and and the link to the translation of uh, what we are really going to be getting. And it doesn't sound; it sounds like they're trying to be more web standards, but they're just really pushing, like you know, like that the translation said. They they want to. They want you to love IE 10, so you will love Windows. Oh, I see. That doesn't. And so well, they're really whatever. trying to. It looks like they're going back to really tying the two together again somehow. So I, I'm that's, not really that's sure. Not too surprising. I mean, it actually is the only browser that only runs on one operating system, right. which is really weird in the grand scheme of things. Right. And but you know, hey, they're going to be supporting HTML5, which is fantastic. That's great. So that is wonderful. And of course, IE 9 supports it fairly well. So uh, right. So hopefully 10 will, of course, be even better and it's good for yeah, – theoretically, it's good for all of us. So my first uh, news item is a little bit more on NFC. We talked about near-field communications right. last time and I happened to catch uh, this article on GigaOM today. The headline is Angry Birds Helps NFC Take Flight. And I thought, what on really? earth did the Angry Birds <laughs> game have anything to do with near-field communications? And apparently uh, it's Rovio, right? I think who makes yeah. – uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Angry Birds. So they are um, releasing a version of Angry Birds for, of all things, the Symbian operating system, which is not prevalent in the U.S. so much, but Europe, it's huge, right? I mean, Nokia, everything Nokia has made until now with their Microsoft executive on board now uh, has been Symbian for a long time. Well, Symbian has, you know, per user, has the the greatest number of users in the world right of any mobile os so it's not necessarily as big here but worldwide Worldwide it's huge yeah so this uh this new version of angry birds you can only play the first 20 levels on your own and then when you get past that to unlock the next five levels you have to bump phones with another nfc phone really yeah so yeah so it's an it's an experiment it's a gimmick Uh you know sure But, but it's kind of a proof of concept experiment to see you know how other uses for NFC, and we even talked about last time that um, NFC is unique compared to RFID in that it does allow for two-way interaction. Mm-hmm. So this is the first example I've heard of. There might be others of, cool. uh, of yeah, two-way interaction. So, uh, And I happened to catch uh, just in passing another NFC article last week, which was that um, – um, MasterCard is experimenting a lot with NFC even more and they're coming out with a couple things and these are all kind of little steps along the big path of near-field communications and how all this evolves um, but they are coming out with NFC on a basically micro SD card as an option hmm. so that if your phone wasn't NFC equipped but it was micro SD card capable, oh. which many are, yeah. then you could make your phone NFC capable by huh. plugging in and do payments through your phone 
using it. So it's an experiment. It's not a permanent solution. Like the tiniest credit card ever. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't sneeze or you'll inhale it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then lastly, a part of that article, uh, there were rumors that MasterCard uh, is involved with Google and Citibank to build a Google-branded mobile payment system using the phone rather than the SIM card. Um, but you oh. know, using Google phones that are NFC-capable. Uh, and we all know this is coming, right? The uh, the digital wallet that would be your right. phone. So um, anyway, I just uh, it's fun to stay aware of what's going on with this because the NFC stuff was until last week I didn't even know what it was. I mean, right. I knew about RFID for years, but I didn't know about NFC. You had heard about it, but uh, yeah, that article we had last time about Google getting rid of QR tags and going to NFC tags for their Google Places was yeah. Really got my interest, and so I'm just kind of keep my eye on this NFC thing because uh, the mobile wallet's going to be huge, right? I mean, right. And, and if, if NFC continues to get uh, to gain exposure and market share, etc., then I can see a future not far from now where it's going to be integrated into a lot of websites. And if you build a exactly. mobile, a web like browser based, even because I know that like mobile Safari on my iPhone can tap into the GPS chip. If I right. allow it to, and things like that, so right. I can pro- see that mobile browsers could probably tap into the NFC, NFC capabilities. capabilities as well, possibly. Good I mean, point. It's certainly. You know, so it sounds it, on on one level, it just almost sounds like it's just about a phone, but it's really not because yeah. you know mobile phones are they're just about they're more mobile users than there are PC users now. So if you're doing a website for anything, you got to pay attention to this stuff. Exactly. So let's hear our next item. Well, coincidentally, it's another mobile uh, <laughs> item. Hey, common theme. But um, well, we you know we hear a lot about how Android has the biggest market share of any mobile phone OS as far as smartphone as far as in America sales go, right? Yeah, users and sales, and um, which is true if you're only looking at the phone stats. And so, uh, I think I forget. I don't. I didn't write down the exact numbers, but I think. Um, Market share in the U.S. The uh, Android is like twenty-eight percent, and um, uh, iOS is about twenty-six or twenty-five or something like that. So, not a lot more. But um, if you look at iOS in general, um, it actually outpaces Android by about fifty-nine percent. Mm-hmm. So, when we you know we always think about the phones, but we also forget about the um, iPod Touch, right? Which there are a ton of. Yeah, there is a lot. And of them there's out also there. a, a ton of iPads and iPad twos right. out there, which run iOS. And so, um, you know, iOS their users altogether, including the iPad and the iPod Touch. Right, that's an interesting point. I hadn't really thought about that. that I hadn't see either. Phone stats. It's usually about the iPhone as opposed to iOS devices. Right. Mm, but when you're designing have. something for the for the iPhone, like maybe it's an app. Then it can be used on any iOS device. It doesn't have to be the phone. Sure, sure. Um, with, certainly, iPod touches. It would be a sim- yeah. similar experience. Exactly. iPad be a little different, but right. still, it would well, work. iOS altogether. There's 38 million people that use it, and in and Android, there's 23 million. Oh, wow. I mean, neither one of them is anything to sneeze at. But I know a lot of people. Um, when, when you get into the discussion of mobile development, maybe you only have the budget to do one platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people have been uh, for a while. It's been automatically. Oh, I'm just going to do iOS because everybody has got an iPhone. But then we started realizing that Android's really picking up. So people are starting to switch to doing Android. But you're not noticing that iOS is still way ahead of Android. Interesting as far as number of users. So there's still you still have to make your determination based on your user base. I mean, there's different demographics that use. Uh, Android versus iOS, anyhow. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's something in- interesting to keep in mind. And along those lines, um, the uh, Rim playbook recently came out. Yeah, heard about that. It basically sucks. Is that right? <laughs> That's too bad. It, well, here's the thing: it's it's a mobile device, and it has no email app, has no what? contacts app, or no calendar app, no memo app. What? And <laughs> it. And it doesn't even have um, the BlackBerry Messenger chat system. And so... What does it do? <laughs> I'm not really sure. And so if you have a playbook, you have to have to have a BlackBerry that you pair it together Bluetooth with Bluetooth 
And then suddenly you have access to all your calendars and your emails and everything. Oh, but weird. the second you turn off your BlackBerry, oh. you have all that stuff's gone. And I and so the day they announced this and this people realized what was happening, Rim's stock tanked. Really? Yeah, because it was such a bad user experience, a bad wow. product in general. And eventually, sure, they're gonna they're, they I'm have sure a roadmap yeah. to add those things on. But I just cannot imagine a company bringing out a tablet, mobile tablet, especially from BlackBerry, where you know people call them Crackberries for a reason. They right. use yeah. their, the email constantly because they're so addicted to it. Right. Without the email capability. Right. How can you how can you bring out a BlackBerry? I saw one guy that does said, seem really weird. Know, they must be having ice skating races in hell now because <laughs> BlackBerry has something without email on it. So right, um, huh, how strange. Anyway, but so they don't seem to be too uh, dangerous for the iPad. I'm interesting to see where that goes. Yeah, I actually saw an article. I was looking for looking at through my news articles this week. I noticed there was one on a. Uh, I forget which group, Gartner, somebody's forecasting that um, iPad would be the dominant tablet through at least 2015 based on current, yeah. current projections. Who knows? But uh, Anything can happen. Yeah. I mean, nobody expected the iPad to begin with. So. Right. <laughs> so someone could come out with something more. But right. uh, we will see. Um, and then my uh, next and last news article uh, is from Read Write Web. And uh, the title is How to Create Lovable Mobile Apps. Uh, lovable? Lovable. Yes, so I thought it was an interesting title. Cute and cuddly, <laughs> <laughs> cuddly mobile apps, exactly. Uh, so it's it's an interesting article. It does have some good points uh, and some frustrating points, um, but a couple little highlights here. So it's actually an excerpts from a report by Forrester. So Forrester Research just published a report on the best practices for designing mobile applications, um, which is pretty interesting. Just that our market research company would would do that. Um, so it's worth checking out, but there's one major caveat. The article costs $499 to get the research report from Forrester. So if anybody oh, out Forrester. there has a hijacked copy, <laughs> send me a link. I don't want to pay $499 to read this report. So so the excerpts from this uh, ReadWrite web article are, uh, are useful. And so it just highlights... Uh, if you think the mobile user experience design is about choosing the best development tools and designing for a smaller screen, guess again. Um, so he says what you really need to do is create an experience that's useful, usable, and desirable, and that also takes right. into account the five dimensions of mobile context, location, locomotion, immediacy, intimacy, and device. And then they go into some examples of what, what all those things mean. Mm. Um, so it's worth taking a look at. Um, you know, the goal here is to get customers to say this app is awesome. That's kind of the experience you're designing right. for. Sure. And they have some tips. They talk about creating personas in here. You know, some other typical you know uh, UX um, techniques that we're all familiar with. And there's even a section called Design for Love. Um, so <laughs> it's in- interesting. So check it out. And um, if you have four hundred ninety-nine bucks, uh, you can loan me. Let me know. <laughs> so, this article is actually excerpts from the Forrester Research. Book? It is, yeah, on Read Write Web. Mm-hmm. Okay, huh? Yeah, it sounds like a lot of that stuff um, is honestly stuff that is covered in one in on in Josh Clark's book. Yeah, I don't know that there's any. So that's why I'm curious I don't, to I don't see know about the, the research. Report. But yeah, yeah, I'm curious to see the report to see if there is anything different in there. But I'm not going to pay 500 bucks for it. Yeah. Well, either um, way, it's nice to have research backing up that kind of stuff. Yeah. Especially if Absolutely. if you you know you have a client that you're trying to push this with or your boss at work whatever you want to explain how important that kind of stuff is it you know people like numbers when they were trying to make decisions with money this is true <laughs> well let's go on to our feature for the day while I was at IA Summit a few weeks ago I another one of the guys I got to interview was Kevin Hoffman. He is the experience, or one of the experience directors at Happy Cog, and <clears throat> I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast has at least heard of Happy Cog. Um, it's a the web design development company, uh, kind of founded by uh, Zeldman. Zeldman. Yep, and everybody knows him. He's big on the uh, the web standards movement and etc. And so I, I thought it, I got to chatting with with Kevin after one of the keynotes and. Uh, thought, you know, I need to interview this guy because he has a lot of really good stuff to say. And so he gets into a little bit of the 
business of of it and talks a little bit about his take on meetings near the end. So let's give that a listen. Okay, I'm here with Kevin Hoffman. Kevin is the experience director, is that correct? Yes. For Happy Cog? Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'm, I'm one of two. One of two. Okay, and you're in Philadelphia, right? Mm-hmm. Happy Cog has a couple locations, is my right? Yeah, we have, um, I apologize, I'm finishing dessert. Uh, we, we have um, uh, offices in New York and Philadelphia and Chicago, or uh, not Chicago, um, San Francisco. Our West Coast uh, UX director is Russ Hunger. He's out of, um, out of he oh, works okay. out of Chicago, but he works for the San Francisco office. Okay, cool. And how long have you been there? Uh, it'll be three years l- pretty soon. Yeah? Yeah. So give us a little bit of a background of your history, how you got to that point. Uh, okay. Of, I mean, have I, you always been kind of on the, the that track or jumped around? Not really. Um, I started doing web development in graduate school in 1994 um, and built some websites to support community development in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, where I was going to school, and then um, developed a lot of the fundamental like web development skills, front-end development skills, uh, for, for whatever they were in 1994. Mm-hmm. Um, then I briefly worked in community organizing uh, and technology training, but switched back to the web as a career uh, in 1998, yeah. give or take. Um, and proceeded to direct web teams or um, web projects for a lot of universities. So I worked at a private school for a long time, and then I worked at a state school um, as a web uh, webmaster is what they called it then, but um, mm-hmm. eventually they changed it to like web director or web communications director. Um, and I did that for about 10 years. Um, I also taught web design at a couple of schools, uh, graduate school and undergraduate school. I taught at a design school, um, and I taught at um, kind of a, a hybrid communications design usability program at, a, at another school. And one of the schools I was working at as a director, um, we were in a position to hire uh, a lot of different companies for a particular redesign project. Yeah. Um, and we solicited bids from a bunch of different people, and Happy Cog was one of the people. And we started working together and kind of became friends and hung out, and they asked me if I wanted to join up and do this, so that's how I ended up there. <laughs> nice. Yeah. That is a lot a lot of teaching for specifically mm-hmm. in your background. For sure. Yeah, I used to... Um, I taught for about... Well, not, I don't think I taught for more than four years, but I did teach um, for a while. I don't do it so much now, but... I know. How, how do you do? You, do you see that the background in teaching helps in, like, the user experience world at all? I think it helps with presentation. I think it helps with um, listening. Yeah. Uh, I think it helps with public speaking. Um, I don't know that public speaking is a requirement of the user experience world, but it certainly helps. Uh, I, give me a level of comfort, or I don't know if I'm actually comfortable, but I'm certainly. I feel like I have a method. Um, as opposed to just, you know, making it up, you know, which I've, is also a legitimate yeah. method as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've noticed that in, in my work anyway, I, a lot of what I do, and it, this may reflect just the position where our uh, industry, for lack of a better term, is right now, is I do a lot of convincing people and mm-hmm. presenting things to people and explaining things. So I don't have a background in tea. I mean, I've taught a lot of classes in other Realms, but mm-hmm. I found it pretty helpful. Yeah, in, in general, I think persuasion is an important skill. Yeah, um, but when you're teaching, it's persuasion is a ingredient in a larger goal of conveying um, uh, a system of values and skills. Right. So, um, you know, it was interesting. the The curriculums that I taught in were generally pretty out of date with regards to web development approaches and standards, so um, getting those curriculums to change their value system for what they choose to teach, because really, you can't teach everything, and in a lot of, when I was teaching, a lot of this stuff wasn't required. In fact, like, the the course I taught for the longest was the only required web design course, and it was one semester. So, so figuring out what do you do with one semester when you could easily do a four-year degree, um, you know, with a lot of this stuff. So at the time, you know, that was the challenge. But uh, there is a implicit change in values 
for people to start, you know, stop thinking about doing things a particular way or whether or not teaching something is considered important when you only have one semester to focus on that topic. Right. And give, give us an idea what the job of an experienced director is, really. So um, Happy Cog generally has... We have, well, we have a lot of different values as a company, but one of our, our, our values is that um, everyone in the company is uh, practicing. Uh, so I don't oversee a group of people. So I, nobody just is a manager. No, no. That's I, cool. I, um, I oversee really one person and a couple of contractors here and there, um, but I am responsible for you know user experience design deliverables and, and uh, a lot of client relations and a little bit of sales um, as much as anybody else at the company. My focus, I would say I spend the majority of my time doing uh, design work for clients and then the second most of my time is spent um, overseeing the designer that reports to me and uh, facilitating the process uh, for the good, roughly the first half of any engagement that we have. So figuring out, um, you know, given the resources that we have um, and the goals of the client that, that we understand prior to signing a contract, what are going to be the most reasonable user experience research and design approaches that, are, that will get us to a thing um, right. that we can then design and develop if they hire us to do that. Um, uh, our, we do have clients that hire us for specific parts. So we've been hired to do just IA, we've been hired to do IA and visual, we've been hired to do just visual based on someone else's IA, and we've been hired to do um, development based on somebody else's stuff. So, okay. you know, those are, those are relatively rare. Um, most of the time we do, at a minimum, uh, information architecture through visual design, through to template uh, development, and in, in a few cases we do full implementations and uh, content management system stuff. Cool. Now I know that Happy Cog has kind of over the past few years become pretty well known in the web design world and and as well as kind of the user experience IA world. Mm -hmm. What? Why is that? If you can, um, I think guess at all. Well, part part another part of our culture, our value system is really sharing. Um, the practices that we develop or ideas that we develop with regards to process, with regards to um, code approaches, with regards to visual design. I mean, uh, most of us speak at conferences like this one or, or you know, at South by Southwest. Um, some of, occasionally, some of us will speak in an event apart, although that's kind of a, a very special group of people that, that do our, our conference um, an event apart. But that's a big part of our value system. I don't know. We've been really fortunate, I think, to get some clients that are um, really good combinations of uh, good brands, brands that we can get behind, mm -hmm. uh, people we want to work with, and um, projects that have gone really well. And by really well, all I mean is that we've ended up with something that people are happy with, um, that, that accomplishes the goals of the project, but also people are excited to have done. Right. Um, so, so that's, I mean, I think that contributes... Um, I don't know. People are nice. And Jeffrey's a very, I mean, our founder, Jeffrey Zeldman, is a very well-known yeah. person in, yeah. in web design and, and had a hand in really shaping how we do a lot of the front-end development stuff that we do today. He obviously didn't shape it alone. A lot of other amazing people contributed to the Web Standards Project, but right. Jeffrey was a big voice and uh, remains to be yeah, a big voice. Absolutely, yeah. Um, how you, you mentioned that you guys do a lot of work with people that you like and you can get behind. And I mm -hmm. imagine that's a pretty how, how important is that in like you know a lot of folks that listen to our podcast are either freelancers or have very small web you know, companies or whatever. Um, when picking clients, and it, it seems like half the time, just people are like, "I'll just take anybody I can get." Mm -hmm. How important it is to get people you can get really get behind and you believe in what they're doing. Well. I'm not going to say in a public fashion that you should only work for people that you want to work for. If you have to, you know, make a living, you should work in the, at the strata that you're at. Um, we're very fortunate in that we get a lot of inquiries, people who would like to work with us, and we can make some decisions about, you know, um, is this particular design problem interesting to us, mm. or you know, would there be an advantage to us designing this kind of experience because we haven't done it before, or it's something that we you know we're really excited about or passionate about? Um, that being said, uh, you know, there are things that we take or decide to do 
that are, you know, for financial reasons, just as much as a freelancer who's taking, you know, a, you know, a couple thousand dollars to do a WordPress uh, implementation. So, or even less than that, you know, right. depending on, you know, how good you are at WordPress and who you're working with. So I, I wouldn't presume to to say you have to work with people that you're excited about or work on sites that you care about um, for everybody. But if you get to a point where you can, you know, it certainly changes the dynamic of what you do because it allows you to really focus. I think it allows us to really focus on why we're designing what we're designing and not so much what we're designing. Right. So um, by really getting inside the heads of our clients and, and, you know, tackling interesting problems... Um, that we feel are interesting, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that gives us a level of d- design empathy that I think, you know, is ideal. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point because sometimes, you know, you got to pay the bills. <laughs> no, I think you always have to pay the bills. I don't <laughs> well, think it's yeah, ever. Sure. Yeah, I don't think it's ever an option. Um, you know, we try to be as generous uh, with what we do as we can, but at the same time, we charge what we charge because we do the work that we do, and, sure. and that's the reality of it. You know, and when I was just doing stuff freelance, I I felt often kind of torn. Like I really believed in a in a like a nonprofit or whatever. Mm-hmm. You kind of feel like, well, I want to like do it for free or whatever. But you yeah, know, you kind of have to pull back and you we, charge. You, you you can make breaks or whatever. But yeah, I mean, we definitely um, we definitely give people breaks, and we even donate work um, from time to time. Uh, or we figure out ways to provide work in exchange for things. Like we designed a significant amount of this conference's website in exchange for oh, cool. you know uh, them letting us come to the conference and and you know giving us some some sponsorship uh, recognition. But you know, ideally, you know, you, you I mean, the, I, I'm always like the the bottom line of anything, like work, life is always whatever works. So, you know, <laughs> right. you do whatever you need to do yeah. that you feel comfortable with with your own values, you know, to, to, to pay the bills but also to feel fulfilled, you know. Because at some point, paying the bills, if you're doing whatever you're doing to pay the bills and you don't feel happy or fulfilled, that's no good either. No. No. That's a good point. Well, one of the, you're, you're speaking to at this conference, uh, you did a workshop, a pre-conference, about... Running meetings and, and mm-hmm. design, and, and maybe it's the wrong, wrong term. I forget exactly no, okay. what your title was, but can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, one of the things that I think is lacking in our practice is thinking about the meeting itself as a tool that you can apply design thinking to. So, uh, user experience designers have all these great research techniques and approaches, and and kind of tricks and games that you can play, but not that often do we actually take all of that and put it into the meeting environment. So whether you're a consultant or an or a internal team, there's a lot of value in bringing people into your process. Um, you, you get all of their knowledge and passion and interest. And if, if by, by starting to apply a lot of those user experience you know, techniques in meetings, combined with a fairly uh, lengthy um, history of literature regarding just meeting design and meeting best practices, which a lot of people don't really know is out there. Mm. Um, there's a lot of cool stuff that you can do, the most important of which is reducing the amount of non-productive time in meetings, but also increasing the level uh, and quality of relationships that you have with the people that you're meeting with. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of the, the shorter version of it. Sure. But, you know. Yeah, I think... A lot of people, times people think of meetings as something that you have to endure mm-hmm. instead of something that can actually, like you said, be an actual tool to get the work done. Yeah, to produce something. And, and it could be direction or it could be an actual prototype or it could be whatever. Right. But I think, um, I think there's, I mean, there's a lot of literature about why meetings don't work or what's, what's bad with meetings. My take on it is that instinctually we gather when we're afraid so you know if like you're you're thinking about like old brain stuff like cavemen were gathering in caves because they were afraid of you know uh, mammoths or saber-toothed tigers or whatever so you know when your brain is confronted with a problem that feels or may actually be more complex than a single person can manage your your instinct 
is to gather a group of people and kind of huddle around the fire and say, what do we do? <laughs> and yeah. the reality of it is sometimes that's the right tool and sometimes it isn't. Um, you know, and being smart about whether or not uh, a meeting is the, a good tool for it. And then if it turns out that a meeting is a good tool, what kind of meeting and how can you can design that meeting is the next question to actually, you know, make it valuable in your process of getting to something real. Right. Cool. Well, um, where can folks find stuff that you write and things about you, et cetera, if they want to? Sure. Um, I, uh, I write uh, every other month or so at cognition.happycog.com. That's our blog. Okay. Um, I occasionally write articles for uh, far, far more rarely for a list apart. There's an article that you can read about meeting design. There is one on a list apart. Yeah, good, there's a good. it's a article about kickoff meetings specifically. Right. Um, there's an article I wrote. Uh, I've written for UX Booth and um, uh, another another one that's escaping me at the moment. But um, you can also go to happycog.com. And then uh, I have a website called goodkickoffmeetings.com that has a lot of the techniques that I talk about. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'll place. definitely check that out. Cool. Well, thanks so much for chatting with us. Anytime. Okay, so that was our interview with Kevin Hoffman. Um, it was, I thought he had a lot of really interesting things to say. What, yeah. What struck you, Ron? A, a number of things. It was interesting. I, it was fun hearing part of his discussion there on um, – working with clients that you want to work with or clients that you can get right. behind. Um, and I think that's a really good question that we, uh, you know, we all wrestle with at some point, whether you're a business owner or a freelancer or work for a large company, but you don't have as much choice when you're a large company, but maybe you do. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I like the, the way he put it. Um, you kind of have to work in the strata you're in. Yes. You know, thinking of yes. like rock strata. <laughs> yeah. I, I, that, that particular word struck me as well. Cause you know, agencies like happy cog, I, wasn't it you who said that you noticed on their website? No, it was, it was another programmer here in town, though. But he visited the Happy Cog website, and I think it says right on there, Happy Cog projects start at $100,000. No way. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, there's a differentiator that puts you in a certain strata immediately. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. which is impressive. I mean, I would love to, do, you know, that's, it's put thoughts in my mind, not the $100,000 level, but, right. you know, we're a small agency with four people, so we're not at that level, but... Um, right generally speaking but uh it's an interesting thought about how you how you find yourself in that strategy how do they get to work with these large companies um you know compared to other people right and when when you and we all know this but when you get to a certain level um you don't have to be as big as a happy cog or, or whatever um, but you get to a certain level of um Maybe, I don't know if it's how much you charge, how much work you have, how well-known you are, but you can get to that point where you start choosing a little bit more who you take. Yeah, and I think uh, – yes, definitely. And it, I think it's a process, right? Because at first, you know, I certainly took everything I could get oh, because yeah. <laughs> you're trying to pay the bills or trying to build the business. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, I certainly learned some lessons through that, that there are different kinds of clients out there. and. Yep. And, um, you know, it's part of it, of course, is maybe the nature of their business and, you know, how comfortable one is with that. Um, but then beyond that, there's just the interactions with the client themselves for us as a big differentiator that when you get to a point where you can make some choices, you know, some of the things that I'm looking for personally are how well are they communicating? You know, they communicating clearly or are they really vague and not clear on what they want and where this project should right. go? Um, uh, it also, you know, the high maintenance, low maintenance type of clients, you know, low maintenance clients will, you have a meeting, everybody's clear on what you need to do and they just let you run and then you get to come back and show them, okay, here's where we are in this iteration, feedback please. Right. You know, and then you can have some nice feedback. Whereas the high maintenance clients are, you know, they want to be in meetings all the time or they really want to be constantly involved with the process at mm -hmm. every step. Um, that doesn't work so well for me. It's just too... You know, too right. many meetings is too many meetings. <laughs> uh, you know, do they pay their bills quickly? That's, you know, it's nice. Those are great clients that yes. pay the bills as soon as you send them an invoice, right? As opposed to the ones that you've got to remind them 30 days later and 60 days later, hey, uh, I think you owe us some money, you know? Yeah, well, de dealing with clients is, you know, like a constant learning process. And, you know, it. we all want to have those giant, you know, deep pocket clients. And, yeah, you, know, you will. You'll get there eventually. But I was talking to a, a guy who owns a web development company, and he, they put in a bid for a project that was going to be a million dollars. Wow! 
and you know over like a year and a half or it was quite a while and they didn't get it mm-hmm. and he was telling me he's like you know I'm actually glad we didn't get it because <laughs> so the more I looked at it and thought it, we weren't to that point yet mm-hmm. where we could have handled it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you get to the point what and it's not always a man hour thing. No. Sometimes it's um, experience that you've done things before, ways to handle a project, ways to approach a big thing, you know. Yeah. And, and you, Big projects you have, are different. You can't just hang up a shingle and, you know, get a million dollar project. No, you, can, I, you work up to that. We've point. gotten burned once, you know, where I I bid on a project that was bigger than we had the capability to do. That I didn't I didn't really realize that, you know. I thought I thought this was well, you know. I thought it was possible for us right. to, do, and we did do it. But I, what happened was I misestimated mm. because we mm-hmm. hadn't estimated a project of that scale. So it wasn't that we couldn't do the work. I didn't have the experience estimating, and so I grossly underestimated, and um, so that was a very expensive lesson for yes. uh, for us, and and very challenging. But, um, yeah, in the end, I mean, we want to choose clients that are going to be fun to work with. You know, to me, that's what I'm looking for. Clients that are going to be fun to work with and that are going to bring me happiness. And you can't always choose. But every now and then, you know, you do have choices. Maybe sure. you're too busy and you have two prospects approach you at the same time. You know, those are some of the factors that, that go through my mind. And uh, as I'm deciding, well, which one, if I get them both, which one am I going to go for, you know? Right. And it has to do with how you um, promote yourself as well. Definitely. You know, if you promote yourself as just a, a cut rate, I'll do anything for anybody, mm-hmm. then you're going to get any, anything, everything from everybody. And that is so important. That is a consequence of these choices is that as you make these choices, you get more of what you choose. Yes. So if you do take everything and anything all the time, you'll get known for taking anything and everything all yeah. the time. And then you just get more people who, you know, want to pay you $300 for a website. Yeah. And then – and. <laughs> In my experience, more often than not, a client that only wants three hundred bucks for a website is going to be very micromanaging and ends up taking a lot of time. In my experience, not mm-hmm. everybody's the same, mm-hmm. obviously. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I think it's a great point. You're not always going to have choices, but you will get them mm-hmm. exactly in yeah. one way or another. They come along time and to time, and then be careful about which ones you take at those junctures. Right. You know, and and you know, once you make the choice. My my philosophy is don't look back, you know, because it's easy to second guess yourself and think maybe I should have. But you know, you make choices based on the information you have at the time, and make choices for the type of people you want to work with because you think the project's going to be fun, and you know, move forward. Right. And you do bring in more and more of those over time if you if you go that direction, and it does work out in the yeah. long run. So, and I thought you had good things to say about meetings as well. I've actually yeah. read that post uh, on Happy Cog's site. Or cognition.happycog.com. Mm-hmm. About designing meetings? Yeah, about um, kickoff meetings. Okay. And uh, I I actually – I think the first thing of Kevin's that I actually ever read was he wrote an open letter to Jason Fried at 37 Signals. I just listened and, to a podcast by him this morning. It was <laughs> an old one. I, uh, yeah. I, uh, and I brought this up to Kevin before and I didn't want to bring it up during the interview because I didn't want him to you know, make him uncomfortable or whatever. But, um, you know – some people kind of had this perception that you know he and Jason were fighting about meetings because uh, as if you don't know, Jason, Jason is like anti meeting, yeah, right? <laughs> uh, Thirty Seven Signals uh, owner, um, they wrote the, the book Rework, mm-hmm. and they even had uh, in the meeting in the book Rework. There's a lot of stuff about how meetings are toxic. I think is the word that the term that they mm-hmm. use, and how bad they are and destructive and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they even had this website like uh, Meeting Free Day. Like they're wow. going to have like every everybody sign a petition that I'm going to skip every meeting I have today because they're toxic <laughs> and all this stuff. And Kevin wrote a post on on Happy Cog's blog, an open letter to him saying, "Look, you know, I'm not not fighting with you basically, but you're full of crap." <laughs> <laughs> I got that far. Okay. His point, and I asked him to clarify a little bit what he meant, and he said basically what he was trying to say is that meetings can be toxic. Mm-hmm. But they're all they also can be a really good tool. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's that's how Happy Cog tries to approach things mm-hmm. is meetings are a tool that can be misused or can be used very well. Mm-hmm. And if all you do is misuse them, then yeah, get rid of them. 
do something different. Totally. Well, another thing to keep in mind about 37 Signals is they don't do client work anymore. No, they they're, don't. They're a product company. Yes. So, you know, I think it's important to keep that context in mind. And they can't, they were a client services company. They did design and development before they built Basecamp. So it would have been... Sounds like they got burned. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been interesting to hear their perspective when they were doing client work about meetings. And maybe they felt the same way. It could be. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. but it is a little different, I think, once you're doing your own work, you know, on the products that you're developing. And uh, and there's Jason Fried and the other partner, is it David over there? Yeah. I think. But they're both, uh, they appear to me, I don't know them at all, but they appear to be doers as opposed to planners. Very um, much. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, it's a particular approach, which is effective for them. And uh, I could see how it would be very effective in a product development environment as opposed to a client work environment. Well, even where I work now, um, all we're doing is developing products. Mm-hmm. And if you have a big enough team, and I, and I understand, you know, 37 Signals has a different way completely. And I think, you know, what works for them is great. But I have more meetings now than I ever thought possible. Really? It's, it's sometimes it, it borderlines on insane. Wow. Like I have a usually average four meetings a day. Oh, my goodness. Sometimes they're half hour. Sometimes they're an hour. Wow. But um, – 95% of the time I come away thinking I'm glad we had that meeting Interesting. because we could, you know, there's a lot of people involved. It's a big company. You right. Know? And so you have a lot of, a lot of pieces moving in the machine mm-hmm. and once in a while you need to get together, kind of hash things out and go back to work. Yeah. And, uh, sometimes that can be done just with an email or a phone call. But, right. But sometimes it helps to have everybody there. It does. And, you know, again, we're a small company, just four, four people full-time, and then we work with a bunch of subcontractors as well. But we have a kind of all-hands team meeting with the with there's five of us that are regulars, um, but every three weeks with the five regulars just to go through quickly the whole project list. You know, what are right. we working on? Is anybody stuck? Does anybody have needs or resources that I can bring to the table to help them out? And then what's you know what's in the pipeline? What's coming down? And we find that it only, it's only every three weeks. It's a half hour to an hour max, so it's a pretty short meeting. And the idea is just to get everybody on the same page, so that everybody's aware. You know, it's so much easier to work when you know. What's on everybody else's plate? And then, you know, obviously we're communicating regularly because we're in the same office or we're on Google Chat or whatever um, continuously. So there's plenty of communication without meetings in between. But I do find that all-hands meeting uh, every three weeks is really, really helpful. Yeah, and he mentions that, you know, that meetings should reduce non-productive time mm-hmm. and you should increase relationships with them. And exactly. something that I, yeah. I read in a book um, called Click. And I've seen the book. haven't read it. It's, it's not about, like, clicking as in a, with a mouse, but it's about how people, some people just click their, like their personalities when they meet each other or whatever mm-hmm. and the psychology behind that and so forth. And one of the things they mention is the value of, um, kind of accidental time that you have with someone where sure. you know, it's, you're sitting pre-meeting, you're like five minutes waiting for the boss to show up or right. just having a private the conversation. The chat you're having about your kid's mm-hmm. soccer game mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. and how that really builds relationships in a team. Mm-hmm. And I think if you completely scrap meetings, that's harder to have. Um, so anyway. Sure. But yeah. I agree. You know, the relationship building part of meetings is really important. Um, you know, Part of our every three-week team meeting is culture as well. Yeah. You know, it's, it's helping build the culture of our company and, and maintaining that and I think that's really, uh, really important, and valuable. But we're very conscious to keep that meeting short and focused, and um, not be wasting, not be wasting time. Yeah. Well, I'd be interested to some. We'll tell, have to do more talk about the business of web design stuff. Yeah, because that's a great topic. The one other point I want to mention is I love his comment. You brought it up too of uh, applying design thinking to oh, meetings. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I mean, I'm not specifically a user experience designer. I deal with that, of course, mm-hmm. somewhat, but. Um, um, I just think that's such a great philosophy of, you know, and it's occurred to me before as well that, um, you know, user experience isn't just about websites, of course. It's about everything, right? Mm-hmm. It's really the whole enchilada of how somebody, if it's for your company, how somebody's interacting with your company in every interaction. So for us as a web design and development company, it's, you know, what's the experience of people communicating with us by email, by phone? Right. Um, all those different aspects, that's part of the user experience of our company. Right. Um, and I've even recently we've been I've been struggling with one particular contractor, and um, I've been thinking about the user experience of you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, meaning the user huh, experience yeah, of me. Yeah, you know, yeah. what is it like for people to experience me? <laughs> the experience of Ron. Experience of Ron, and I have control over that. So yeah, um, maybe a really good point. it's worth 
bear, you know, putting some of these principles that I've learned to, uh, to bear on that and change the quality of the relationships I have in mm. business. And that makes me happy when I do that. So it's a really good point. Well, as a reminder, um, you can find Kevin Hoffman. It's his website is kevinmhoffman.com and Twitter is at Kevin M Hoffman and, uh, cognition.happycog.com he writes there as well so thanks again to Kevin and uh, we'll see him around I want to mention our podcast sponsor so for the listeners of Einstein and Sock Monkey Audible is our sponsor and they are offering a free audiobook download um, to give you a chance to check out their service and the uh, URL for that is audibletrial.com forward slash Einstein Again, it's audibletrial.com forward slash Einstein. And in addition to getting one audiobook download for free, which you can keep forever, um, you also are a, an official member for 14 days for free, which means you get member prices on additional books if you want to buy uh, more than just that one free book. So check it out. Um, my Audible pick uh, for this episode is I'm reading a book right now or listening to it on Audible uh, that's called Moonwalking with Einstein. Of course, got to have the Einstein theme. This actually is coincidence. <laughs> I heard about this book from somebody else. And uh, it's actually about memory. And, uh, about Einstein's memory? No, I'm not even, I don't actually know where the title, I'm only about halfway through the book, and I'm, or a third of the way. I'm not sure where the title comes from just yet. Um, but it's an excellent book, and it's about memory techniques and about like the, uh, the World Memory Championships. Really? Yeah. And it's huh. really, it's a fascinating book. And he talks about, you know, how how memory training was an original part of you know in the greek times the fundamentals that they had rhetoric and all those things that you had to learn memory techniques was a core part of things back then and and of course going even farther back in history when there wasn't written language remembering and passing stories oh, on was yeah. the only way right yeah. so so the smartest people the most valued people were the people with the best memory cuz they had the culture's history hmm. Hmm. Um, so there's lots of interesting points. And so he talks about, you know, memory techniques that are you, you can use now and how people get really good memory and uh, and that kind of a thing. Yeah, especially because now we, I mean, so much of we are compartmentalize our memory. Well, we <laughs> offload it to our phones yeah, and like to the web. So and much <laughs> of my memory is not in my brain. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. There's another interesting point in there, I think, about uh, how our culture is really – a measure of our collective memory. You know, everything we do, you look at what we have here, our computers, hmm. these microphones, right? All this is built upon what's happened in the past. Right. But that only works if we remember what happened in the past and how to build up from there. You know, it's a good point. Yeah, I think one of the points in there was like if you had a Neanderthal kid that was teleported here as a baby, they would be totally integrated with our culture and fully up to speed. Their brains weren't any different than ours, really. Yeah. Right. But it's it's the the memories and you know the experience that we carry forward with us that we learn through school and then build upon the work. Yeah, of there's some it's really interesting. Some like uh, you know, there's all these books that are like some cataclysmic event happens and and the, I forget what I can't remember which one it was, but basically what happens is the entire database of everything in the world, all computers are wiped out. Okay, yeah, that would be and a nightmare. so nobody and it, it had progressed where there's no books anymore, uh, so there's right no there. knowledge and civilization starts from like the dark ages and you know no memory because everybody forgot right yeah that's, that's that true. sounds like an interesting book i'll definitely have to yeah check I, it out. I, the, your last one i i i downloaded your last recommendation delivering happiness yeah yeah it was a great book have you listened to it yeah i listened to it oh great yeah okay. isn't it good it's yeah, a it's good really story good. i like i like how he um tony shea reads the book himself i do too and has like nice employees of zappos read the book as well yeah they read their little yeah. their excerpts their segments yeah yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, uh, to download your free audiobook, just as a reminder, it's uh, audibletrial.com slash Einstein. And uh, let us know if you have any uh, thoughts for books you'd like us to recommend in the future. So uh, this is a brief reminder about our book club that we have. I know we're a little bit late on this one. We're um, planned on doing a review of the of Undercover User Experiences on this episode, but life happens and so um we are going to hopefully do it next episode <laughs> sometimes <I'd say> tentatively <laughs> let me just say in the near future because it uh, some of it has to do with uh, um the schedule of kenneth bulls because we're going to interview him about the book and yeah, talk with we him we want to get bit. that interview so we're, we're holding out for yeah and so uh, in the meantime 
go to undercoverux.com. You can buy the book there from Amazon or, or wherever. And you can also get it uh, via Kindle or uh, the iBook store. So my blog pick for the week is I, you know, I, I keep coming up with all these blog picks that don't have anything to do with UX because mm-hmm. in the back of my mind they're kind of a given. But I realize that there's a lot of U- really good UX blogs that I don't really mention because I don't think about it. But one one of my favorites is UXMag.com, and um, it's UX Magazine, and they always have. A lot of really good uh, articles. If you go to their the uxmag.com, it's it's um, you know just a ton of information at the at the first. But they always have really good um, reviews of, of books, and they have um, uh, the categories are strategy, design, and and so forth. And so uh, I would definitely recommend going to uxmag.com and seeing a lot of the articles they have. They go over the uh, research that's been done, um, techniques. Uh, ideas and etc. Plus, they have a little quote from Aristotle on the homepage. How can you go wrong with that? So, anyway, that's at uxmag.com. And my blog pick of the week is inspireux.com. Uh, and this is run by uh, Katrina Cornett, or Cornett, not exactly sure. Uh, Katrina, if you ever listen to this inter- uh, this comment, <laughs> I apologize that I don't remember how to say your last name, but it's funny how I came across her blog. I met her at UX Week, out, which was run by Adaptive Path a yeah. couple of years ago in San Francisco cool. at that conference. And um, so connected with her there. And today I was uh, trolling through thinkvitamin.com's blog, which I read periodically, and ran across a mention of her. And I thought, really? They're mentioning her? So I went to her blog, and um, it's a really excellent blog on user experience. So I highly recommend it. She works for the Archer Group. Yeah. You know, she was at the she was there this week. She was uh, at the IE Summit. Yeah, she was at the IE Summit I sat next Denver. to her at like two different – Oh, did you? Like, I got to chat with her a little bit. Yeah. That is funny. When you said Inspire UX, I thought – because that's her Twitter handle Right, well. it is. So I follow, I've been following her. Yeah. yeah. I follow her on Twitter, and so I saw her tweets. She's officially there. a cool person as well. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. So anyway, her, her blog is great, and um, it's a lot about the day-to-day work of user experience design. And she's a senior UX strategist for the Archer Group, which is a pretty good-sized uh, company. Mm, yeah. Um, and anyway, her posts are very interesting, very helpful. And there was one from just uh, last month, or a couple months, February 7th, titled Top 6 Help Design Patterns for iPhone apps. Help design. Yeah. Um, and it's so she covers six different ways that you can provide help systems through mobile devices. Oh. So, for example, demos, uh, tutorials, uh, scrolling through them quickly here, single screen overlays, walkthroughs, tips, and single screen summaries. And it's a great article because she goes through uh, a description of each, examples of each, pros and cons of each. So, you know, if you're working on mobile apps at all, um, this is a really great way to get an idea of, you know, how do you teach your users how do you use your app. Yeah. Yep. And anyway, so that's a very great detailed post, and she has posts on a really wide range of UX topics that cool. are excellent. So check well, it out. Yeah, thank you. For and again, that link that. was uh, inspireux.com. Well, uh, to close out, just a big thanks to Josh Mulligan for doing the show notes every time. And today uh, we had a bit of a change of plans. I want to say a big thank you to Rocket Jones Interactive for the use of their conference room, the place where we usually record our uh, construction involved yeah, or something. I guess it's random construction. So I made a quick call to my good buddy Jeff, and uh, we're over here at Rocket Jones in there. Really nice, cushy conference room. <laughs> yes, <laughs> with sofas and no conference table and no like. echo. <laughs> no, <laughs> and yes. no echo. My, my office is always available, but there's a horrible echo in yeah. the conference room, so it yeah. doesn't work so well for the podcast recording. So, thank you very much, Jeff and Rocket Jones, for letting us uh, work here today. Yeah, and want to remind everyone to please visit our website at EinsteinAndSockMonkey.com. Uh, and you can find me online at uh, CodeGeek.net. Or on Twitter, I'm uh, Ron underscore Z. And my website is clevercubed.com, and my Twitter handle is also clevercubed. And please uh, do subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. Uh, and if you would, we really would love for you to rate us in iTunes. That's the best way to let other people know about the podcast. So please go to iTunes and rate us. We would really appreciate it. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll see you guys next time. Oh,
Spinning Sock Monkey is sponsored by CodeGeek.net, a full-service web design and development agency, and CleverCubed.com, providing user experience design, usability testing, and information architecture, and presented by Ron Zazadinsky and Steve Martin. Music provided by the band Black Lab. Find them at BlackLabWorld.com. Yeah.